The following podcast is a Green Fresh Media production. Hello, my wonderful friends, and welcome back to Too Smart for This, a podcast dedicated to knowing better and doing better for ourselves and others. I'm your host, Alexis Barber, and today I have one of the most exciting conversations I've ever had on the podcast. We are interviewing Jane Allen, who is the author of the novel Black Girls Must Die Exhausted. This book definitely sounds a little daunting in the title, but it is a wonderful story that touches on everything that a 33-year-old woman goes through, ranging from relationships job issues, dealing with her family, which is a child of divorced parents, as well as fighting for the dream where she has to face an impossible choice between her career, dream home, and a family of her own. I devoured this book literally from start to finish in a few hours, and getting the chance to talk with Jane Allen was one of the best things that I've been able to do because she is just so inspiring and her work is so relatable. So a little bit about her before we jump into the episode. Jane Allen is the pen name of Jeanique Seeley, a graduate of Duke University and Harvard Law School. Drawing from her unique experiences as an attorney and entrepreneur, she crafts transcultural stories that touch upon contemporary women's issues. Black Girls Must Die Exhausted is her first novel, which she calls the epitaph of my 30s. A proud native of Detroit, she lives in Los Angeles. Please take a listen at our wonderful conversation. Follow her on social media. Everything will be linked down below. And let's get into it. Welcome to Too Smart for This. I am very excited to have you on and chat through your book, um, which I loved. I finished it. like I devoured it in one sitting. So I'm so excited to chat with you. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So I would love to get started with a little bit of a rapid fire question situation, and then we can chat more about your background. Does that work? That's great. Let's do it. Perfect. Okay. So my questions are appetizers or dessert? Oh, and you can't have both, huh? So then I think I'm going with dessert. All right. Um, but I Instagram usually have both, to be honest. But usually both, <laughs> as you should, as you should. Um, Instagram or TikTok? Instagram. Favorite TV show of all time? Oh, of all time? Um, mm-hmm. Okay, I think it's probably going to be Sex in the City, although I wish it were a different answer a little bit. <laughs> I, I know it's. Yeah, I know what you mean of like, I wish that I wasn't, you know, giving a basic answer, but I am. Right, exactly. And I wish that there was more representation in that series. So as a black woman, I feel like you should have a different answer, but it is. It's sex in the city. I feel you. I feel you. Uh, Do you have a favorite book or podcast? Um, do I have a favorite book right now? My favorite book changes, but where I am in my life right now and what I'm focused on, my favorite book right now is The Alchemist. Oh, really? I haven't, I have not read that one, but it's always recommended. Yes. I, I think that, I, I mean, I won't say I don't think everybody should read it, but I do think it is a really good book. I try to read it once a year and mm. especially when you're embarking on something that's a big journey or, you know, something that feels like a large, uh, important dream or something that's uncertain, I think it's a really good book to encourage yourself with. Well, good. Then I might have to pick it up this weekend. Um, Okay. (laughs) Then last one is, what is your most important self-care practice? My most important self-care practice is me time. So feeling empowered to not engage. So sometimes mm-hmm. I need to just do something which seems strange in you know, the society that we're in and, and also having just been in extreme isolation. But sometimes I have to do that to process my thoughts, my feelings, you know, do all of those things for myself. So allocating that time just for myself to do that thing, it feels very self-indulgent, but it is definitely a foundation of my self-care practice. I can completely agree with that. Um, I feel like I always grew up in environments where people were like, 
it's so weird to be alone or why do you want to like have me time? Like we should be going out and making the most of what's around us. And I'm always like, I need a minute. Like I'm so excited today to have my like Friday night alone. So I totally agree. It seems counterintuitive, but I do think that time with yourself, we, we're so disconnected from ourselves and it's really hard to hear yourself, which probably sounds weird, but to actually get connected to what you're thinking or feeling, you know, and to process through those things and get through all the noise, it just does sometimes take that alone time. Exactly, exactly. So for you, do you, is there any specific things or rituals you do to like hear yourself better? I journal. Um, mm-hmm. I definitely journal. And that helps me to amplify my thoughts and feelings because I did spend a very long time uh, dis- not even realizing how disconnected I was from my feelings. I was just powering through everything. So mm-hmm. now I have to really try to create that pause to make sure that I'm honoring my feelings and acknowledging how I feel and then you know, using that to inform my decisions. Absolutely. And I agree. I got into journaling just about a year ago and I can't like I people who don't journal, I feel like they don't understand how intensely it can like change your life, you know, because you. Yes, exactly. Right. When you're like actually reflecting on your life. So you mentioned powering through, um, which is also a huge theme in your book, Black Girls Must Die Exhausted, which I'm is a novel. It sounds when at first glance like a sort of like a self-help book, which I might categorize it as such because it gives you so much incredible perspective and is a wonderful story. Uh, but I'm curious for you, one, did this come from like personal experience? And if not, then could you tell us more about your background and how you came to be the author of this? Sure. So it did, in a sense, come from personal experience, although I, my personal experience is not directly reflected as the protagonist. So I just want to make that mm-hmm. clear. Mm-hmm. But my background, I, I started uh, I studied engineering, went to law school, decided I was going in the music industry and was a music industry exec for a long time before I branched off as more of an entrepreneur and focused in marketing and brand development and wound up working with some pretty big superstar names in that space, and then uh, went into brand building and uh, building companies in kind of startup land. So so I came to writing, uh, Jane Allen is my pen name for fiction, and I started writing nonfiction uh, whenever I thought, okay, here's something interesting along this journey that I want to memorialize and you know, I never took the time to really market it. I just put out what I thought was good information and kept it moving. I was like, this is my service. I'm putting what I know in this book. Who needs it? Whoever needs it will find it. And I, I'm moving on. So as I go from project to project or, you know, whatever I was doing. And uh, throughout my 30s, so I'm in my early 40s now, I had a lot of focus on that that space of what society tells you you're supposed to be doing. Because when you're in your 30s, everything feels so meaningful and important. And then there's this tension between when, when everything feels so meaningful and important, there's this tension between you wanting fulfillment and that feeling like that should be something important to you. And then what society tells you you should be doing that is supposed to equal a good life. And that doesn't always, the, the things that you're supposed to do or what society tells you doesn't always equal a good life and certainly doesn't necessarily lead to fulfillment for most people. So in your 30s, there's this tension happening between that. And I thought, wow, this is something really uh, important to capture and maybe give that perspective to people who, you know, I wish somebody had handed me Black Girls Must Die Exhausted when I was in my late 20s. Yes. <laughs> but maybe can change. The experience of it and maybe way more on the side of fulfillment as opposed to, you know, the weight of what society tells you you're supposed to be. So that's kind of the, the my thought and what led into the idea for Black Girls Must Die Exhausted. My personal experience was um, in my 30s, I went through fertility, uh, issue, reproductive health issues. I was dealing with fibroids. And I also was at a point in my late 30s, where I decided I was going to freeze my eggs. 
And as I found out in that process, first of all, the the world of uh, like reproductive health and, and egg freezing and all of that stuff, IVF and everything is a whole other world. It's, it's a world unto itself. The journeys that happen in that space are incredible. And it really opened my eyes to so much. Um, and I, and I didn't see a lot of resources or, or many resources or much information about uh, what happens in that space, even about egg freezing. And so I wish I'd had that information. I didn't see it reflected in fiction at all. And I had, and there were maybe a handful of books that even told you what to expect. So from what I experienced, that space is, it's important to have information. It's important to have uh, resources. It's important to have support. And it's a, important to have an, it be normalized as something that you are aware of so that you can take advantage of whatever options are in front of you. Uh, so I thought, look, this is important to put, if I'm going to write a, a novel, I want to introduce a topic that is something that is important, that affects lives, uh, that's going to affect health, that's going to affect finances, because it, it touches on all those areas of a woman's life. So that part comes from me and my experience and me wanting to do something to give back and give perspective uh, for people who, you know, from all ranges of life, you know, whether it's younger, whether it's, you know, in the same age range as me or even older, because I think there's something to glean from from that journey and normalizing this conversation of reproductive health. And then the, the last bit of it was uh, when I came up with the idea for this book, I was again in my late 30s. And the way that I was feeling from my experience in society, the layers of experience of being a woman, of being a Black woman, and all of the things that i was unthinkingly shouldering, felt exhausting. And so what I decided to do with this book was take that on um, head on and try to change the meaning of that and move from this space of survival mode into reminding myself that it is important to make sure that I'm thriving. And that really needs to be my focus. And I think that comes across so well throughout the book, um, which touches on everything like you mentioned from reproductive health to, you know, race and to, you know, mixed race families to, you know, mm -hmm. finances. Um, so much gets brought up here. And I think that uh, when I was thinking about all the themes and all the stories that were touched on here, I realized like just the sheer number of them demonstrates that like the title can feel very true when you're in that survival mode all the time. And I don't even think I realized until a therapy session like a month and a half ago that uh, mm -hmm. I do a lot of things because I'm good at them and because like people expect me to. I always feel like I have to, you know, educate everyone around me. But in mm -hmm. reality, like what about what I want? And I think that's a really important theme that comes out here. So for you in your life, like what was the turning point moment from going to a place where you, you weren't just surviving, but you were thriving? It was the first time I really realized that I could go off the track, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, um, that that was an option. And it was, I was in law school and I was very entrenched in what that conventional path was supposed to look like. And I had a, a permit offer after my first year of law school, which was unusual. But mm -hmm. what that meant was I'd, go, I'd be going through the second year and third year knowing what my future looked like and with this sort of sense of financial stability and career stability. And so what that gave me was an opportunity to dream a little bit. And because what I realized in having that, at first I was really excited, like, okay, yes, you know, I, I, I have this job security. I have this career path laid out now, you know, I just need to graduate and it'll be fine. But, um, but then I started thinking more deeply about it and realizing, okay, so this actually means I'm going to spend eight years as an associate. I'm going to be working, you know, till I pass out and then I'm going to, you know, make partner and then there'll be a, a big financial windfall, but I'll be too busy to spend the money in the way that I want to. And is that what I really want my life to look like? And it did not feel good. It did not feel like what 
I envisioned and I wanted more of an adventure. So I gave myself permission I, to ask this, just a very simple question. Well, if that's not going to make you happy, what will? And mm. so I thought about that. I really spent, again, we talked about that alone time. And I really sat and gave myself some time to myself and to dream that answer up. And I, it did not look like that path in front of me. And so it, it, it looked different. I wanted to be in the music industry. I realized I wanted, I didn't want to be in, you know, New York or LA. I wanted to be in DC and, you know, I, I just let myself play it out. And then fast forward a few weeks later, three weeks later, an opportunity that sounded very much like what I had dreamed up arose. And so I had the, you know, the courage and the gumption and, and the motivation to go and pursue that. And that's how I wound up on a different track. But that was my first moment of realizing, hey, you can shape your journey and it's okay mm -hmm. to get off path. Uh, so that that just continued to evolve and grow as I've continued my career. So it sounds like you were in a place where you had a lot of stability around you before you could allow yourself to dream. And I, I mean, I have a very similar experience, like up until getting like the dream job or whatever, which is never really the dream job. It felt like that was the only path. So I'm curious, mm -hmm. like, how did you grow up and what, what created that, you know, focus on the like prescriptive path that comes with the big names and the big jobs um, up until you had that realization. So like, what was your, I guess, your childhood like in that, in that vein? So my childhood was very academically focused. Both of my parents are professionals. I grew up with both of my parents in the household and it was a very stable uh, upbringing. I was in private school uh, and again, very, very academically focused. Mm -hmm. So that was where I was positioned the whole time. And there was not really a question about what I would be doing. And even if I did say something that was off track of, you know, that conventional professional pathway, which was really limited to you're going to be either a doctor or lawyer, <laughs> right. you know, uh, then that was quickly squashed with, with mm -hmm. intensity. So if it was, you know, something creative, I want to be a, a singer, I want to be, a, you know, on television or any of those kind of things, that was not acceptable and was squashed. So mm -hmm. for me, that was how I believe those were my only choices. Yet I still had this burning desire to do something else and more creative. So what I realized in retrospect is what I wound up doing was you know, fudging the lines and pushing the boundaries of, okay, if I'm going to be a lawyer, I'm going to be a lawyer in the music business. You know, if I'm going to be a lawyer in the music business, I'm going to be on the business side. Or if I'm going to be on the business side, then I'm going to work in marketing and then I'm going to, you know, start. And then if, if I'm going to work in marketing and I'm going to be building superstars, why won't I build companies? You know, so that was how it, it was an iterative process. And even, you know, getting my first dream job, I was in my dream job what felt like my, what was my dream job at the time. And then four years later, my dreams got bigger. So yeah. my dream job turned, you know, that definition changed. And I had to know that it, at that point it was time to move, you know, move forward and jump out of a perfectly good plane. So that, those are the kinds of things that, that came up and, and it was definitely an iterative process, but you know, my, my early years were very, very regimented and narrowly crafted about where I was going to go and what I could be. Yeah, I think that's a common experience, not just um, for Black women, but across like many cultures of mm -hmm. it's really often just like your parents and it's often just like the environment you're in, whether you're trying to succeed in an environment that's regimented like that or if you're trying to get out of a chaotic one it's really hard to realize that there's more than what's like been put on the table for you. Um, and I'm, right. I'm, and I off, I often felt that way myself too. So I am curious, however, when it comes in the vein of culture, writing a book like this, that is focused on the black community. Something I've noticed is that 
every time black women make things or venture out into a creative space or build something in the entertainment industry, it's often taken as a representation of the entire community. So did you worry about that when writing this book? And if so, like, how did you deal with that pressure? I did worry about it, but I had to just continually remind myself to dismiss that because yes, there'll be people that take it that way, you know, but you can't control what other people do. And I think that's the, the point of uh, when you're thinking about creating art and thinking as an artist, I think that's a po- an important point to remember and reinforce and internalize. You can't control what other people do. You can't control how other people react. You just have to make the decision that you're going to put the art out there and you're going to have your own artistic integrity in what you did. And you're going to have to just have your own intentions and let that be it and let it go. And so with me, I just had to know for myself that this is a, a representation of this character and this character's journey and the characters in the book's perspective. Um, there's a, a conversation that happens in the book with the protagonist who's Black Tabitha and then her grandmother who's white and they ask each other, what does it feel like to be the race that society has assigned to you basically? And in writing that scene, I had to, cont- you know, at first I was putting a lot of pressure on myself just from the realization that, you know, I hope people don't consider whatever these two characters say to be reflection on behalf of everybody of whatever classification, because this conversation doesn't happen often enough. So, you know, when it does, you do something new, then people, you know, it becomes a lightning rod of, of, uh, for everybody like, oh, this is a representation of, of all conversations like this, because there's not enough to choose from. And so I had to remind myself, you know, this is, this is just, just let this be that and don't, don't take on that pressure. So, um, so yeah, I think you, you know, spot on identify that this is an issue. And I think it's an issue a lot of times for black creators because there's so few representations. There's not enough that a lot of the times when we do present a perspective, it's new it's novel. It hasn't been done before because there's not right. a lot of opportunities. And then, you know, it runs into that space of, of, you know, the pressure of, oh, now because there's not enough representation, it has to do so much more than what an artist really should be tasked with. I mean, you know, so I think that's a unique a, a unique pressure for underrepresented voices. And this happens with, with Black uh, artists. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I don't think it's fair, but you know, kudos to everybody that's fighting through it and and creating art anyway. Absolutely. And I I have to ask curiously, personally, is when you were writing this, did you feel a pressure to like make it quote, like palatable for white people? No, I did not. I I think actually to the contrary, (laughs) uh, what I saw, I see and I've seen in traditional um, fiction, in what I've, you know, uh, too often, when you have a, a black perspective, it seems to be written with the assumption that the reader is going to be of, of the white, you know, societal perspective. So it's like you're writing for a spectator, and you're over explaining cultural things instead of just speaking them truly and leaving them there. And what I did and what I wanted to do with this book, whether I did it or not, but what my intention was, was to keep it culturally authentic to Mm. Tabby's just being Tabby. It's a first, you know, first person narrative. She's just being her. She's talking how she would normally talk. If she's code switching, if she's at work, she's, you know, and she does between in different scenes, you see her code switching between her friends and how she talks at work. But when she's talking to the reader as the narrator, she's not explaining stuff. She's just mm. telling you what happened. And I believe that whether you're black or not black, uh, or if you're not black, you should you can do the work of, of understanding this. And I think it's more yeah. important to be presented in its cultural authenticity so that there's work to do. And that makes it more meaningful. And I also think that for a black audience, I think it's important to be reflected as you are because that brings 
there's a value there and there's an acknowledgement there. So I wanted to create space and, uh, and I thought that was important to acknowledge authentically and to invite other cultures into the space, but to make it culturally authentic so that what you're experiencing in reading this book is, is real. And you yeah. can take it outside of the book and, and still trust it, even though it's fiction. And I feel like it was very real. Like in reading it, um, I recommended it to so many friends and coworkers this week because I was like, well, Thank I you. honestly feel like this is, um, it is authentic because a lot of times you see things in the media that are created to be palatable to either the white or black audience and therefore Mm -hmm. like something gets compromised there but I also think like that having central white characters here also helps to realize that like you know this is not just like a story for one person Um, and I appreciated that especially as someone who has a white grandmother who I wish was as um, not oh. racist as Tabitha was, oh. um, but it's a it's a really wonderful wonderful story, and I'm I'm also interested to hear for for you. You mentioned the reproductive story sort of came from personal experience. Um, was that for you the hardest thing to overcome in that time of your life, or were there other th- were what did it feel like all of these things were piling up at once? Whether it be career, relationships, friendships. Um, in the same way that it came to a climax in this plot. Yeah. Well, so the most important thing for me to do was write a human story. You know, I, I think that we oftentimes get so caught up in the way we classify ourselves that we forget that fundamentally what we're saying is human and then, you know, human and with layers. And yes. so it was really important to, you know, center uh the human beings and and the and then look at it from with layers with layers of experience with layers of perspective and for me the um human experience i was having when i came up with this book i felt unseen i felt unprotected and i felt exhausted i felt tired i there were you know this the idea for this book came to me in 2016 and this was around the time of the uh, presidential election where we're, regardless of who you're, you know, for whatever, it was this first moment that as women, we could think, oh, wow, there really might be a woman president. And when you think about that, the fact that that's a thing in 2021, or right. not 2021, but, you know, it's still a thing in 2021 because there hasn't been one. But the fact that that's a thing is a reminder like that there is a glass ceiling, like there is a glass ceiling, you know, and that there is, there's these limitations and there's this, you know, this experience. And then as a black woman, the, the idea of personal safety and, you know, authenticity in spaces, I did not even at that time, hadn't even experienced the natural texture of my hair. I had never worn my hair unstraightened in my life. You know, that, that was crazy. (laughs) <laughs> you know, my, my late, exactly. and, I, and I, you know, that like you think about that, the just the, the, the conditioning, the societal perspective, that's still, still a pervasive societal perspective that the way that your hair grows naturally out of your head, if you wear it like that, it is deemed insufficient in some ways that need to be corrected by like extreme forces of like chemicals or heat. That extreme that forces, extreme, <laughs> yeah. extreme forces, and a lot of time. If anybody knows about being in the beauty salon, but mm. um, but just that, like you know, we we breeze through it and we power through those things. But if you stop and you really think about it and you really connect to your humanity and what that feels like, which I think we're conditioned to not, but that, there's a weight, there's a human impact there. And it is heavy and it is there. And, you know, we talk about like stress and how stress can affect people's health and all these other things, you know, really paying attention to it and feeling into it. That's a thing. And so Mm. I allowed myself that and realized that the weight of these layers, like there are layers and I was not conscious of them until I was. 
And so yeah. that was my personal experience um, coming into to the story that just acknowledging for myself that uh, that that this is that I do feel a way about this and it, and it's, it's heavy. And, uh, but in spite of that, I'm still joyful. I'm still a good friend. I'm still a good partner. I'm still all of those things. And I, this needs to be celebrated. And if I feel this way, I know there's gotta be some other people that feel this way too. So I want to, I want to celebrate them also and acknowledge them. So that's what this wound up being for, for me, I, I felt like a celebration was needed. And um, the, the hardest thing in my thirties, it wasn't necessarily the just one issue. It was all of them. <laughs> you know, it was, it was the, the, the infertility experience, the egg freezing experience, the authenticity experience, like all of these things that I just kind of went through. Again, we, we breeze through them, we power through them, but it was all of those things. Um, and, and so I, I wanted to shift the narrative and, and celebrate everything in spite of. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that for me is still something I'm working on to hear from you. Like the fact that there's so much frustration and hardship, um, even if you are like being the quote, like perfect black woman or the perfect woman mm -hmm. or the perfect person, there's so much to deal with and go through and to recognize that like two things can be true at once. Like you can both mm -hmm. have um, a frustrating situation and be celebrating and having joy. I think is like a, it's, it's, since it's so, they're so opposite, it's difficult for me to like take in because I get so frustrated sometimes. And I am curious for you, like as you're going through these things and how do you stop yourself from powering through when there's a lot happening? Um, is it by looking for celebration? And if so, how do you cultivate that? So, yes. So the, I, I was doing so much powering through in my thirties and I slowed down. I, I didn't even realize that the slowing down was necessary, <laughs> you know, and I, and I didn't have a shift in values. I mean, it's a shifting in values. And I went from, this external, I need to achieve this, I need to achieve this, I need to achieve this, I need to do that, and thinking that that was the bar to this internalized measurement. Am I fulfilled? Mm. Am I fulfilled? Am I fulfilled? <laughs> do I feel good? Do I feel good about it? Yeah. And so once I made that shift, it forced me to slow down because the only way I could answer those questions with my new set of values was checking in with myself. The only person that had the answer to that was me. And so that was how uh, I made that shift and, um, and started checking with myself. And what I realized is that two things can be true at the same time. Yes, you could be going through uh, something, trying to achieve something, and it can be both fulfilling and unfulfilling at the same time. And so it's, to me, I look at it from the perspective of how, how full is my cup? And a full mm. cup can accomplish more. And so that, so as long as if I'm taking care of myself and making sure my cup is full, then I can accomplish more and I will also be fulfilled. So the, it's, but it starts with the cup. So, and that means checking in with myself. If, if I'm feeling bad, if I'm feeling unfulfilled, then sometimes that just means that sometimes for me, that means that I'm doing something really hard. And the reality I'm facing with this thing I'm creating is telling me all of these things that aren't possible and it feels heavy. So that means that to keep going, I need to do something that's going to counterbalance that. I need to fill my cup. And so I don't have the magical answer of how anybody else can do that. I just keep trying to create and curate experiences for myself, you know, rewards, joys that fill my cup. So I have my mm. friends and my family, you know, I spend time with them. I, I schedule that time <laughs> to make sure it happens. I've gone to the extreme of making a, a weekly schedule. And there are people I see at, at specific times every week, no matter what. Those times are protected. I don't schedule over them. 
we are going to see each other for an hour every week on this day. And I can't do it with a lot of people. I only do it with right. like four people. But mm-hmm. those are so important. That's I realize I need that. And it seems like they do too. So we, we do it and we've done it. And, you know, I, I just the list for me, you know, is, is for me. But I, I think that part of spending the time to, to figure out what fills your cup and then commit to doing it. You know, even if you have to go to an extreme, right. like I had to go to the extreme of putting it on my cal- It's on my calendar. <laughs> Absolutely. And I noticed that because while I'm reading this book, I'm like, how is this woman doing all this stuff on Saturday? Like she is busy <laughs> on Saturday. I was like, I was like, my Saturdays don't look like this, but I can see yeah. the scheduling that's happening there. But yeah, I think that the the differentiation that you mentioned there was really eye-opening for me. It was like, sometimes you're feeling this heaviness just because something is hard not necessarily mm-hmm. because it's like it's like unjust or something although sometimes it can be so filling up your cup to counteract that is a beautiful way to i guess deal with how much the world is asking you to deal with and i love that mm-hmm. curating experiences for you looks and how you've figured out how it looks and how important it is to you because a lot of times those things get lost because people just you know are powering through too much Right. Right. And it's, and it's not, um, it's an ongoing process. I mean, I have, you know, there's days where I'm baffled and I have to sit and think, wow, what would make me happy? And I don't know, (laughs) you know, so it's very, there's no, there's no, it's really its own process of figuring that out and, and just deciding to try something. And even that sometimes feels like a risk, you know, I'm like, okay, well, I, I need to, find something new that's going to fill my cup and maybe this will work and maybe it won't. And yes, I have to allocate the time and maybe, mm. you know, it will, it will be a bust, but at least I'm, I'm trying and I'm, I'm experimenting because i I have to value my fulfillment that much, you know, to, exactly. to take those risks for myself. And that is so, that is, that is true. And even the concept of like valuing your own fulfillment that much, that's profound because you have to get to a place of realizing what fulfillment is for you and how it can change over time before you even get to a place where you're on the daily trying to cultivate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. It's a, I, it's a journey. It is. And I think what's nice to know about it is that it is a journey is I'm, I'm very young and coming to these realizations in my post-grad life and not sure I would have been able to if we didn't have all the alone time of the pandemic but Mm -hmm. it is a it is comforting to know that like a lot of adulthood in life is just a consistent growth personally and everywhere else and it comes in waves and it's not something that like as many people including like the protagonist at the beginning of this book could see as you know you ascend and once you have all the things or the external things, you'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you, it's not necessarily true. And the, the great thing about fiction for me, you know, like I, like I said, I started out with nonfiction. So kind of mm-hmm. for me, I'm using fiction as an examination of life. It's, it's my little laboratory. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I like reality TV and the reason I was thinking, like, why do I like this so much? Why, why do we love this? Like, it's, I know. it feels ratchet. Like, what is it? <laughs> but, I, but I think it's showing us as a writer, you can only write what you have, what you understand. You can only write up to what amount of life you process and understand. And the rest mm-hmm. of it is not available to you. So what reality TV gives us is this, you know, they're casting people with certain personality traits and putting them in conflict with each other and then seeing what happens. The rest is kind of an experiment, but we learn from that. And so I wanted to do that with what I've learned from life in this point, which is why in my forties, I was able to write a book about being in your thirties. So I've processed that. Yeah. And in this, you know, what I used fiction for was to craft these, these characters, you know, thoroughly craft these people, create these people uh, put them in scene and in in uh, story with each other for conflict and to show different parts of themselves, and then craft scenario to push them past where what we see in the everyday ordinary, and then see what happens. 
So for me, a lot of the time when I was writing, I didn't know where the characters were going to go. I'd set the scene up. And I, and I, what I realized with, especially with these, with the black women that I have in my uh, story and the scenarios that they're in and the people that they are with these characters, I had to throw a lot at them to get them to break down past that, that facade of the, of the strong black woman that we're conditioned to be in society. I mean, when people are like, oh, this, these are a lot of issues in this book. Yes. I had to throw a lot yes. at these characters to get them to break down past that, that veneer and that facade. And so, mm-hmm. cause we need to be unraveling because there's the human story there. There it is. Like we've been hiding, you know, we we're conditioned to hide our pain to, and then people think we don't feel pain. No, we do feel pain, you know, but we're, we're conditioned to hide it or we're, and we're conditioned to ignore it and we're conditioned to move past it, but that doesn't mean we don't feel it. And it doesn't mean it doesn't affect us. So one of the things that was important for me to do in fiction and story, and I think this is kind of my approach and what I'll, cause I love doing it this way is to use fiction to push us past the everyday and to get to that human vulnerability that that is the magic you know is the place where we can learn from and that we don't always have the courage to go to in our everyday lives absolutely and you said it so so beautifully and i think i feel as though fiction is sometimes something our generation can you know go stray away from in favor of mm-hmm. those you know quote helpful nonfiction books but what's more helpful is being able to see yourself in a story like this and mm-hmm. realize how you can relate to those feelings and learn a lot about yourself through the characters. So I know that you mentioned in your book that getting to, or in the epilogue, that getting to build a fiction book was almost, it was tough for you and was almost impossible. Mm -hmm. So what was the process like for becoming um, a fiction writer? And what would you, what advice would you give to people who are interested in doing that? Well, my journey definitely was uh, unconventional. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and when I when I set out to do this, I was knew I was doing something different. I knew centering a black female protagonist in contemporary fiction in this way, uh, in this way where it's her experience of being black is not just this foregone thing where you say the character is black and then you leave it to the reader to yeah. project whatever biases or, or conventions or thoughts that they have around what that means onto the character and, and you just tell a, an otherwise generic story. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to under, I wanted the reader to under, I wanted Tabitha to tell you what her experience is like and show you the layer of ra- how race affects her life show you Mm. so you can't assume she's going to tell you she's going to show you and she's not going to gloss over it because she can't because i won't let her (laughs) i keep throwing stuff at her until until she has to respond um you know past the conditioning so when i you know so when i went to traditional publishing with this and it was my it's my first novel and I thought, okay, maybe the feedback I'm going to get is, well, wow, you can't craft a story or your writing isn't good or whatever. Uh, <laughs> but my feedback was from agents initially, we don't like your protagonist. We don't like her. We don't like, to, you know, we can't connect to the story. Mm. And I thought, wow, that's weird <laughs> because yeah. nobody else that has read this book and these are pretty intelligent, prof- busy professionals uh, said something different. So I had my network of, of friends and, and family um, whose opinions I respect and whose opinions the world respects, I guess, in a lot of situ- situations, tell me something very different. So I thought, wow, that's really strange feedback uh, to say. It. I thought this sounds this sounds like projection and it sounds like bias. And mm. to know whether or not that's true, I mean, the only way to to, to counteract this is to challenge it. And if they're projecting on behalf of who they think readers are and what readers are ready for, I can change that or I can let's let's figure out what's true. And the only way I can do mm-hmm. that and, and rather than shoving it in a, in a drawer and saying, oh, this isn't publishable is to put it out. 
And so I hired editors, I, you know, there, I had a story editor, I had an editor, editor, I had a copy <laughs> editor. I, I, I did all of the pieces of that I could assemble uh, of the traditional publishing process. And now that I'm traditionally published from that space, uh, I know there are the other differences, but it takes a lot of resources to do that. But I used the resources I had to create the most professional version of the, the manuscript as a as a book, as a novel um, that I could cover design. I wanted it to be something that people could feel proud of in their hands. I hired a professional designer, uh, Manira Mosaval. She's amazing. She did the original cover. I call it the OG version. And <laughs> it's gorgeous. Thank you. Is, do you have the green one or the pink one? I have the pink one. So the pink one like is the the is the current the current edition the traditional pub edition there's a green one that uh was the original uh indie pub self-pub edition and so what happened with that book it started to build community on its own people started to come to it because they saw themselves reflected authentically and one of the most important things for me was to see reviews from black women saying oh my gosh i see myself in this thank you for tabitha and seeing mm -hmm. reviews like that was that was what I was most looking for. The rest of it, I'm like, yeah, if this is authentic, that's where I wanted to be. And people who are not black saying, I can relate to this. I love this. I've, I'm enjoying this. That to me is a, something to celebrate because I'm like, yes, we are human. And you're able, society's telling you that as a non-black person, you can't connect to the black experience because it's somehow not human. No, I'm so, I can celebrate seeing that. And I can celebrate, I, I just love when I hear somebody who's not black say, oh, I love this, or I, or my heart was racing for Tabby, or I'm like, what? This is so cool. So I, I, I love sharing that. Um, yes, I mean, I think it's important even for black people to, and black women to hear that as well, that yes, you know, our humanity is, is being acknowledged and is being addressed and embraced. So uh, fast forward during the pandemic, while we were in quarantine, I made myself available to help unpack this book with any group of uh, book club that was reading it. We're all at home. I was like, I, it's just a virtual, you know, experience. I one of my favorite things to do is connect with readers. You know, just ping me if I can do it, I'll show up. So that turned into over sixty book clubs across five continents. It was wow. crazy. It was an amazing experience. But in one of those clubs, I was introduced to the woman who had become my agent. And she said, you know what? I see the community here. I, this is unconventional. This is unusual. But I'm going to try because I get it. And this is important. Mm -hmm. And she took it to the Harper Collins Harper Perennial team. They got it right away and they picked up the trilogy, the first book, Black Girls Must Die Exhausted, the second book, which is now Black Girls Must Be Magic, comes out in February. There's a third book coming out <laughs> I'm next so glad year. there's a second book. And there's a fourth book. Yes. Yeah, so we have four books together, a standalone that's outside of this universe. Um, but yes, yeah, so they really came to the table as partners. We did a new edition of the book. I got more resources, more editorial resources, more... Uh, more editing, more revision. So it was I was really able to hone and craft the experience so perfectly for this edition. It just made it I can sleep so well at night cuz I'm like, oh, this is <laughs> this is what I now intended. You know, there's no limitations on that. So um, so that's how we got got here. And what I would say for um, someone who wants to be a, a writer, I would say two things and and it depends. One thing I would say is if you have an idea and you believe you want to be a writer, I, I think you should follow through on it. And whatever are your obstacles, if you don't know how to write a book, take a class. I took mm. classes. I took writing classes. Solve your problems. Remove the obstacles and just keep inching forward on. But honor your ideas. Don't give up on them because you don't know how to do it today. You know, just mm. keep chipping away at that. And then the second thing I'll say is which was specific to my experience as a black writer, as a, um, as with this story, there are, there are realities in our society. There's bias. There's things that we're trying to break down and change, 
but that are still shaping the things that we experience. And as a writer, especially new with, you know, a debut novelist or your first time doing something, there's so many questions and there are always going to be questions about your worth and your value and your ability. And is it good enough? Do I deserve this? You know, am I, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? You, mm-hmm. you, those questions don't go away, even with a success of something or, or whatever, as a writer, those questions linger with you because you, it is powerful what you're doing. And there are things that will happen to you sometimes just because you're black. Mm-hmm. And you cannot let those things that happen to you just because you're black be the answers to those questions you have about your worth and your value and your ability. So that is what I would say to similarly situated writers and, and maybe all writers, but in particular, uh, black writers who are trying to put forward new stories, new perspectives, underrepresented perspectives. I would say, don't let what happens to you be the answers to the questions that you have about your worth and your value and the importance of your story. Wow. That was a, that's a wonderful way to wrap up and also just wonderful advice, whether you're interested in being a writer or not, to not let that define you. Um, yeah. And I love your story and I love how this organically became a community. I love how it's going to be three more books, which makes me very excited personally. Um, and I'm <laughs> so you. happy for you that like you really took believing in yourself, finding your own fulfillment, and it became something that so many women can relate to, so many people can feel seen through, and so many um, of young people can learn from. So I'm so, so grateful for you to believing in yourself, and I'm going to take it as a sign to believe in myself as well. Oh, yes. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Of course. I like to end my episodes with the same question I ask everyone, which goes along with our title. So I would love for you to finish this sentence with something that you want young people to know. You're too smart for self-doubt. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Too Smart for This. I really appreciate your support. So please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify. It helps me out so much. If you like this, check me out on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Alexis Barber. And don't forget to follow the show at You Are Too Smart for This on Instagram. Have a fabulous day. And don't forget, you are too smart to not love yourself.